everyone welcome to antibodies this is our 25th episode in the immunology 101 series a segment where we do our best to explain complicated immunology concepts joining me today is my wonderful co-host koshika how are you doing i'm doing well but uh, we seem to be missing um dr gardner yes dr gardner unfortunately <laughs> had to work and she couldn't join us today oh boo that's a bummer yeah koshika did you know that in addition to being an immunologist ash drives an ambulance really was well, science too boring for her i think it's just uh, driving an ambulance is cool but yeah <laughs> i also think it's well working with the emergency medical services is just as cool as being a host on a podcast yeah and by her name like dr gardner i always thought maybe her real calling is being a plant pathologist <laughs> yeah right <laughs> yeah. it's in the name <laughs> yeah well koshika are you ready to hear the answer to the most important question in human history oh please tell me that we have a consensus on which immune cells we hate most well we do have a consensus let me walk you through the whole tournament history we had two finalists battle it out for the prestigious title of the most hated immune cell or if you're not sensational like us the least likable immune cell the finalists were neutrophils and innate lymphoid cells you'd oh. be happy to know I'm really or happy to know, know. ILCs. <laughs> Wait, you already you you already looked at the results. Yes, it is ILCs. So all the people who previously said that neutrophils are dumb or they don't like neutrophils, well, turns out there are people who hate innate lymphocytes more than neutrophils. So I don't know if this is something we should celebrate, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> I will celebrate it. I I else I I will see to it that I celebrate it. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, we missed your puns. <laughs> well, now that we have answered this question once and for all, would you like to return to less important things in life like running the podcast and reviewing the last episode? Sure. I really enjoyed listening to the last episode. You and Ash talked about the six types of antibody effector functions and briefly there were neutralization which is blocking the ability of the pathogen to function, opsonization or as you said to make tasty and help the macrophages eat up the pathogen, agglutination which causes the pathogen or toxin to all group up together, complement activation which means as the name suggests activating the complement system and for this you can also check out our episode 16 antibody dependent cell mediated cytotoxicity adcc for short which means activating nk cells to mediate cell killing and finally antibody activated degranulation which is activating granulocytes for degranulation and release of histamines and such okay thanks again for reviewing this i got to ask this are all the antibodies capable of all these effector functions that you just mentioned the short answer is no the long answer is the unique classes of antibodies each specialize in some of these functions as we discussed in the previous episode we have five classes or isotypes of antibodies or as ash called it gamed so igg 
IgA, IgM, IgE, IgD. So let's start with the IgGs since they are the most abundant class of antibodies in our blood. IgGs are bivalent and can be further classified into four subclasses. So in humans, they are called IgG1, IgG2, IgG3, and IgG4. In mice, they're called IgG1, IgG2A, IgG2B, and IgG3. All of these subclasses have slight differences in their effector capabilities. Now, generally speaking, IgG antibodies are great at neutralization and opsonization for phagocytosis. Human IgG1 and IgG3 are also quite amazing at activating complements and are great at binding to NK cells and mediating antibody-dependent cell-mediated cytotoxicity, or ADCC. So neutralization, ADCC, complement activation, and opsonization. Looks like IgG does it all. Is uh, Can you say the IgG is the OG of all the antibody classes? I mean, if we're talking about the timing of the response, or instead, let's say the first line of defense, the OG or the original globulin, which is what OG stands for here, is actually IgM. Now, IgM antibodies are found in circulation and are produced by a class of B cells called B1 cells. Now, B1 cells are more innate-like, by which I mean they're not responding to a specific antigen, but they're constitutively producing these germline encoded antibodies, which we call natural antibodies. IgM antibodies comprise an essential part of these natural antibodies, and they protect us against certain pathogens, such as streptococcus pneumoniae, and can also help to clear like cellular debris. Then there's also antigen-induced IgMs that are not produced by B1 cells, but rather by B2 cells. Oh, yes, IgM. I remember in a previous episode, we discussed the first wave of immune response that involves IgMs. And we also talked about how IgMs do not undergo affinity maturation. Exactly. But what these IgM responses lack in terms of affinity, they make up by avidity. Now, so we can refresh the memories of our listeners when we talk about antibody affinity, it is the strength of interaction between an antigen binding site on an antibody and the antigen. Now, when we talk about avidity, on the other hand, it is the overall strength of interaction between an antibody and its antigen. So it considers the binding strength or the affinity and the number of binding sites an antibody has for its antigen of valency that we mentioned previously. So if you look at IgM, it's a pentamer, which means it has 10 antigen binding sites and hence pretty good overall avidity. Now, looking at the other end of the pentameric IgM, by which I mean the constant part of the, uh, of the antibody, FC end, you can also intuit that having five times the number of FC domains means that's one of the best at activating the classical complement activation pathway. Of course, it only does this once it binds to the pathogen, and then the pathogen can be lysed by complement activation. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, and another way why, by which IgMs help clear pathogens is by agglutination that we were talking about before as well. Owing to its many antigen binding sites, it will clump up the pathogens, get them cleared. And this is especially true at mucosal surfaces such as the lungs and the gut. You can say the IgMs put the pathogens at mucosal surfaces in a rather sticky situation. 
oh, those puns are back. I I hear them. <laughs> yes, but the now if you're talking about sticky situation and slimy surfaces, well, the star of the slimy surfaces and secretions has to be IgA's. Yeah, but IgA is also found in circulation, isn't it? Uh, well, yes, uh, there are two classes of IgA antibodies in humans, IgA1 and IgA2. IgA1 is more abundant in serum and IgA2 in secretions. Functionally, they're essential in the blood where they can mediate ADCC, simulate, uh, stimulate phagocytosis, and they can even trigger degranulation of granulites, uh, granulocytes in certain instances. But really, it's in the mucosal surfaces and secretions where IgA really shine. What do you mean? In many ways, uh, in mucosal tissues, IgA forms dimers and polymers. Uh, so it can bind to toxins and pathogens, and it can neutralize them. It can even bind to commensal bacteria. And, well, these are bacteria that, well, let's say, are resident in your gut. And they will prevent such commensal bacteria from entering the bloodstream. So it helps maintain tissue homeostasis by keeping our friends from drifting away to places that where they should not be. The key here is that IgA does not activate complement, which means these interactions are not inflammatory. And maintaining tissue hemostasis without inducing any damage to our system. And being multimeric means it's also excellent at agglutinating pathogens. Another sweet aspect of IgA, well, pun intended, is that it is heavily glycosylated. So when it is bound to pathogens, it can interact with the, mu in the, uh, with the mucus with the sugars on its surface, and pathogens get trapped in the mucus, and later they get cleared by just our gut activity, which we call peristalsis. Yeah, and to illustrate just how important IgA is, especially in the guts, between three to five grams of it are secreted into the intestinal lumen daily. Yeah, put that in perspective, that's a lot for a single type of protein to be made. And yes, to add to that, although it has a relatively long half-life in secretions and is resistant to protease degradation, some conniving germs have even evolved strategies to evade IgA response by producing enzymes that can degrade IgA. Mm, those germs are very conniving. So we've discussed IgG, IgA, and IgM. What is next? Well, only the bane of every allergic person's existence. We are talking about IgE. It's the least abundant of all antibody classes in circulation, but it is also very potent. Uh, granulocytes such as mast cells and basophils have high affinity receptors for the FC region of the IgE. When the IgE is bound to these receptors and gets cross-linked by the binding of its cognate antigen or allergen, in many cases, it triggers degranulation of these cells. This means that the mast cells and basophils will start releasing nasty stuff like histamines, pro-inflammatory cytokines, leukotrienes, and proteases, resulting in all the discomfort that accompanies allergies. That just sounds so terrible. I mean, IgA just sounds bad. Why do we have it at all? Well, because like everything in life, it's just not black and white. IgA responses are 
protective against some parasitic infections and even snake venom. Think of the allergies as more of an unintended side effect that's brought by the IgE. It does a lot more than that. Mm. Well, now we're almost through our arsenal of antibody classes, which gives leads us to the last letter of gamed, which is D. So frankly, I haven't actually heard much about IgDs. Do you know anything about it, Koshika? Yeah, I mean, that's because I think there wasn't much known about its function until recently. So our previous episodes mentioned that mature B cells express IgM and IgD on their surface. Now, IgD is also secreted, but there isn't much of it in the blood, and it seems to be enriched in particular tissues. So, for instance, in the upper respiratory tract, where after it binds to different pathogens, it can also bind to basophils and mast cells and activate them to clear the pathogen. But we know very little about IgD and its mysterious receptor, if it exists. But since we haven't talked about the mysterious receptor for IgD, maybe we should talk about the antibody receptors we do know about, you know, the FC receptors. Right, the FC receptors. Yeah, they're a lot of fun. Uh, FC receptors remind me of a little bit of chemokine receptors because they are similar in the intricacies and the coordinations of the response. The FC receptor will bind to the FC region of the antibodies. It will cross-link with the antigen because the antibodies, the FAB arm will attach to the antigen and its FC arm will attach to the FC receptor. And then this coordination eventually ends up as a signal that is sent into the cell to initiate the appropriate immune response. Ah, yes, the FC receptors cross-link. That's so important too, because there are many antibodies in circulation at all time, and they regularly bind to FC receptors. Right, but without antigen, there wouldn't be any antibodies binding to the same antigen and linking together. However, when there is antigen binding, the antibodies will cross-link and activate the pair paired FC receptors on the correct immune cell. That's interesting. Now, if I remember correctly, there are a few different types of FC receptors, right? Yes. So there are four main types of FC receptors. Uh, and you can, again, use GAMED, but remove the D. So we have GAME, FC Gamma, FC Alpha, FC Mu, and FC Epsilon. So these, this is quite helpful because it sounds exactly very similar to the antibody classes, IgG, G, IgG, IgA, IgM, and IgE. Right, yeah, and, and their names do match the main antibody classes they bind to. So for once, we have something that you don't have to remember separately. The classes of antibodies do match with their FC receptors. Now, apart from these four classes of FC receptors, there's also two unique FC receptors. First, there is the polymeric IG receptor, uh, poly-IGR. Sometimes you will find people referring to as big R. And mm -hmm. the neonatal FC receptor, which is abbreviated as FCRN, the big R mediates epithelial cell endocytosis of IgA and IgM, and it transports, transports stuff or antibodies across the epithelial cells in the blood and mucosal tissue. The FCRN, as the name suggests, it helps protect fetuses and newborns from pathogens, but as we know now, it does a lot more than that and has important function in adults too. Uh, you could say that FCRN is 
a little bit of a misnomer. It's it misleads you into believing it's only active in neonatals, which is not. Although we are not going to go too much in detail about FCR in, in this episode. That's cool. I mean, there's so many different types of receptors. So why is that? Uh, FC receptors are really cool because first they link the antigen specificity of the antibody with the strength and speed of the innate immune system. So there needs to be a lot of coordination in order to do this. And there needs to be many unique FC receptors. Uh, actually, if you count all the different forms, there are about 14 known FC receptors. Wait, I thought you said there are four types of FC receptors. Oh, yes, there are four types, but there are also subtypes of FC receptors in some way, how there are multiple subtypes of immunoglobulins. And then I, then I told you about these two extra ones, the PIGR and the FCRNs. All right. So can you tell me more about this coordination mediated by the FC receptors? Yes, definitely. Uh, proper antibody effector function is orchestrated by not only the binding affinity of each receptor and antibody, but the location of those receptors and the responses each receptor generates. This can get kind of confusing, so I want to use a metaphor. All right, I'm ready. Use your metaphor. <laughs> All right, imagine you have three delivery trucks. Okay, you know Ash wrote this because there are trucks and she's driving a <laughs> truck ambulance. <laughs> anyway, let's get back to the truck metaphor. Okay, you have three delivery trucks, a red one, a yellow one, and a blue one, and they each carry paint. What is the color of the paint? Uh, well, uh, let's say the red truck can only carry the red paint or a color of paint that is made with red. So if you're thinking about the color wheel, red and blue make purple, red and yellow make orange. So the red truck can carry red, purple, or orange paint. Exactly, yes. And the yellow truck does the same with yellow and, and its derivative colors, and the blue truck with blue and its derivative colors. So let's say an order comes in for red paint. Only the red truck can deliver it. But if an or uh, order comes in for orange paint, then either the yellow or the red truck can deliver it. Uh, right. So they both do it? And not quite. The second important factor is when it comes to paint delivery is what kind of truck they are. What I haven't told you yet is this red truck is really big and the yellow truck is uh, pretty small. So when the order was for a lar large amount of orange paint, the yellow truck is just not big enough for the order. So the red truck will end up delivering the large order of orange paint. All right, but what if it's a smaller shipment of orange paint? Will the red truck still deliver it? The third thing is that that is important in the paint delivery business that we're talking about here is the purpose of the paint. Uh, well, what is the customer going to do with the paint? All right. Uh, the big red truck is actually a tank truck, and it carries the paint in a tank. But the yellow truck just brings the paint in normal paint cans. Uh, if a customer wants to paint his kitchen, he isn't going to be able to get any work done with the paint stuck in a massive tank truck, right? But if the yellow truck delivers the paint cans, the customer would be very happy, can actually paint his kitchen. Okay, that, that's an interesting story, but how does this relate to the immune system? 
Well, a city he said is a the cell is like a city that is desperate for paint. Uh, the FC receptors are the paint trucks, and the antibodies are paint. So first, each type of FC receptors can only bind to and carry a certain types of antibody classes. Second, each cell type is equipped with different levels of each FC receptor, and the FC receptors have different antibody uh, class affinities. And lastly, the response of each cell differs from one FC receptor to the next. So if you consider all of this, the, the variety in the FC receptors expressed on the cell, the variety in what each receptor, what kind of antibody each receptor binds to, and the kind of signaling that goes through each FC receptor, you can see that there can be a lot of, a lot of variations in the overall response. And so the antibody responses, they are very well orchestrated and varied in this way. So that's a really colorful and great way to simplify a really complex <laughs> system. Well, yeah, well, there are many, many, many details about FC receptors and their signaling that we aren't covering today. One other important part of FC receptors is that some that do not activate cells. So there are some FC receptors that would actually inhibit the cell. And this helps prevent unintended activation and sets the threshold for activation of the immune cell. The inhibition and activation signals from different FC receptors will compete to make sure the cell responds appropriately. In fact, there are models of autoimmune diseases that can be generated by knocking out some of these inhibitory FC receptors. Well, that really sounds like there's a lot of coordination in the immune response. There needs to be, I guess, so that it can protect us from all different kinds of pathogens out there, and, you know, on the other hand, as you mentioned, you know, we don't have this kind of like autoimmune responses. So there needs to be this kind of like rheostatic balance. This is crazy that yeah. evolution created such a complex system. Yeah, I agree. And also it, it does look like it's very complicated to come out of evolution. But at the same time, isn't it billions of years or millions of years that it's taken us to yeah. get here? So yeah. it better be worth it. <laughs> Well, I'm also impressed uh, by the many ways in which an different antibodies work. And no wonder monoclonal antibodies are the backbone of so many therapies today. In fact, the company I work for, our main product is a derivative of a monoclonal therapeutic. So yeah, it's 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 what's making money because it's working. <laughs> yeah, I mean, really, I mean, and when, when we think about it, what all is there on the market today as therapies? But before, you know, these things could come in as therapies, there was definitely a first puzzle that scientists had to solve. And that was how to produce these antibodies in the lab. And incidentally, a couple of immunologists, Cesar Kohler and Georges Milstein, many people might have heard of them. They solved this in 1975, quite close to where I live in Basel. So although they won the Nobel Prize for it, their technology was never patented. And many years later, like in an interview, somebody asked Milstein if he was, if you know, he ever regretted not patenting the technology. And he replied, I was not unhappy. Margaret Thatcher was. But that's a <laughs> conversation for a different podcast. Oh, man. Okay. So I've got to ask, how did they produce the monoclonal antibodies? So it's quite ingenious, really. So they made an immortal B cell hybridoma line. 
they fused a myeloma cell line with spleen cells from mice that were immunized with sheep red blood cells. So they selected these few cells by growing them in conditions where only the few cells would survive. So in this way, they, co they combined the immortality of the myeloma cell line with the antibody-producing capability of the splenocytes to produce large amounts of antibodies against sheep red blood cells. So there were other scientists, obviously, you know, sheep red blood cells antibodies, do we need them? So obviously, other scientists jumped on this, and they rapidly adapted this technology to generate more valuable antibodies. And the first to be approved for clinical use was OKT3 or muromonab, which could deplete T cells and was used for inhibiting kidney rejection. Of course, I have to say, I, I love how in hybridoma, the first uh, type of hybridoma technology, they used these uh, mutants of de novo DNA synthesis pathways and the salvage DNA synthesis pathways to make sure not, only the hybridized cells survive. That was that was a genius move. Well, uh, also I would like to mention. I, th I don't think we have talked about what specifically is a monoclonal antibody. So I will just preface that with a monoclonal antibody is an antibody that is derived from a single clone of B cell. So technically, all of these antibodies that are derived from a single clone should be exactly the same, which means, well, for a therapeutic, it's consistent. You don't want to have a variety in the kind of antibodies produced because that would make for a very hard to control antibody and studying efficacy and yeah. all that stuff. Anyway, something that doesn't sound quite right about injecting mouse monoclonal antibodies into humans because you said uh, it was it was produced by spleening, uh, I mean, fusing splenocytes with uh, myeloma cells, right? So yeah. I don't think we can do that with humans. So how yeah, are you yeah. going to use these monoclonal mouse monoclonals into for human therapeutics? You're absolutely right. So one of the problems or the critical problem of this technology is that, you know, you'll have an immune response, of course, to anything that is not human, right? If it's you're injecting mouse antibodies, we are not used to seeing mouse antibodies. This is not that something that belongs to us. We'll have an immune response to it. So this technology has been obviously engineered further. And scientists have really come up with very clever ways of generating chimeric antibodies. Now, what I mean by that, these are antibodies that have a mouse antibody variable region, but the human constant region. So the FC portion is human. Beyond that, we can create, we can even create antibodies where only the hypervariable parts are of mouse origin and everything else is human. Now, these are called humanized antibodies. And most impressively, we can produce fully human antibodies using particular mouse strains or phage or yeast display libraries. And ASH, I think, works with humanized uh, mice. So it'll be really interesting to hear from her about this particular technology as well. Yeah, we should bring her on next time and ask her about some humanized antibody stuff. Yeah. <laughs> or humanized mice, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And yet, you're right, knowing they're coming from antibodies produced in mice that are completely of murine origin to chimeric antibodies to humanized antibodies we have come a long way in our antibody production technologies but what are some ways antibodies are currently being used right now oh there's so many there's a whole range of medical applications from determining the blood type you know whether you are O positive ab positive such such uh, very basic information to diagnostics 
uh, in basic research, as we immunologists know very well in phenotyping of cells, yeah, uh, are essentially our entire antibody panels to kind of identify different cell types. And we use antibodies to understand basic mechanisms of diseases, and very importantly, in treatment of many diseases. So let us take cancer treatments as an example. Here we use antibodies like rituximab, which is a chimeric IgG1, which binds to CD20 expressed on B-cell lymphomas. Once it's attached to the tumor cell or the lymphoma, it will engage NK cells and macrophages to trigger ADCC and phagocytosis. Now, finding a tumor-specific antigen is a key challenge here. Another way to kill a tumor is to starve it of essential growth factors. So, and here this is a very difficult antibody to pronounce again, <laughs> Bevacizumab, which is a humanized IgG1, neutralizes VEGF, which is vascular endothelial growth factor, which is needed for, as the name suggests, vascularization of tumors. And finally, it is worth mentioning, really worth mentioning, immune checkpoint inhibitors. Now, these antibodies target proteins that block the immune system from attacking the tumor cells. So in a way, the ICI, they kind of like help our immune system to overcome the uh, suppressive environment of the tumor. Oh, yeah, no, that's that sounds like a pretty cool strategy, just preventing the tumor from evading the immune response. Exactly. And examples of these are pembrolizumab, which targets PD-1 on T cells, or ipilimumab, which targets CTLA-4 on T cells. We actually discussed quite a bit on cancer immunotherapy in buddy sodes 8 and 9, so I'd recommend the listeners to go and check that those out. Uh, Koshika, I just have a pet peeve. Why is the naming of these therapeutic antibodies so complex? Why do I have to twist my tongue <laughs> to oh, call out a therapeutic name. Is there is there I some just, logic into this? I mean, I am completely on board with you. I absolutely hate the naming convention. I hate the tongue twister naming of these antibodies. I find it very difficult to talk about it. But I have to, even I have to grudgingly admit that there is a logic. Whether there's a consistent logic to it all, we can discuss it in another episode. But there's definitely a logic, which has to do with, you know, what it's targeting, where it's uh, where it's um, generated, and so on. So, mm -hmm. but we can go into the details of that in another episode. Yeah, that's a good idea. And we only just scratched the surface on the ways in which we use antibodies for different disease treatment. So let's continue that con uh, conversation in another episode. Yeah, that okay, sounds so good to, to me. Wrap up, yeah, to, to wrap up this episode, We've talked about a lot of stuff with antibody classes and FC receptor classes. So let's bring it all together. We discussed the effector functions of the five antibody classes. Then we talked about pain trucks <laughs> and <laughs> FC receptors and how FC receptors mediate activation and inhibition of cells based on which antibodies are binding, on which receptor, and how much of that receptor is being expressed on what kind of cell. Then we just reviewed why antibodies are so important for diagnostic purposes, for therapeutic purposes. And I believe this is easily one of the most important tools in biomedical research right now. Okay, yeah. uh, Koshika, I think this would be a good point to wrap up the dis discussion. 
thanks a lot for this wonderful discussion uh, for our audience if you're interested to know more about our science communication endeavors please check out antibodies.org you can find out about our blogs and podcasts there if you have any questions or suggestions you can email us at antibodies1 at the rate gmail.com with that i'm your host jatin sharma signing off until we meet again bye bye see you Nice.